Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm your host, Michael Quet. In this episode, I welcome two prominent scholars, Robert Pollan and Jason Hickel, to discuss the most pressing issues on the climate crisis. Bob is an economist known for his work formulating plans for a global Green New Deal. Jason is known for his work on degrowth and how to transition to a fair and just post-growth economy that eradicates global poverty. In this episode, we start with the basics, explaining key ideas and concepts like planetary boundaries and cap and trade, and then work our way up to more complex ideas. I invited Jason and Bob to discuss how their distinct approaches can help us resolve the climate crisis before it's too late. While both guests agree on many positions, they differ on the limits of economic growth. The discussion outlines a crucial debate emerging within the environmental movement, one which deserves more attention. Robert Pollan is co-director and distinguished professor of economics of the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His most recent book is called Climate Crisis in the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet, co-authored with Noam Chomsky. Jason Hickel is a visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics and senior lecturer at Goldsmiths University of London. His most recent book is called Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. I highly recommend reading both of their books as they are quite timely and taught me a lot about the state of the world and the current environmental crisis. Bob and Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Good to be with you. All right, I wanna start off with Robert, Bob. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the, the basic core concepts of the situation that we face with environmental problems today? Sure. Um, well, you know, it's a huge question, obviously. Uh, maybe one way to um, summarize it succinctly, uh, if the um, Stockholm um, Resilience Institute, I think, does something very useful which is they put out uh, this thing they call the planetary boundaries. Uh, they refer to nine planetary boundaries and they give summary figures as to where we, the human race stands relative to uh, breaching those planetary boundaries. So without getting into all of them, I mean, some of them of the nine, uh, environmental climate crisis, of course, is a big one biodiversity loss is a big one, uh, destruction of carbon sinks, um, such as the Amazon rainforest, uh, ocean acidification. Uh, these are, you know, some of the most pressing, or let's say they are the most pressing. Of the most pressing, and since we can't talk about all of them today, I would focus on the climate crisis. Um, it's the most pressing because I think that it we face the most imminent danger um, with respect to survival of human life on Earth. I mean, if we follow the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a UN agency, mainstream climate science, and of course, I'm not a climate scientist. So um, these, the IPCC gathers research from uh, climate scientists around the world, and they've told us that you know, we have to stabilize the global average temperature at 1.5 degrees Celsius above 
pre-industrial levels, that is roughly around the time 1800. Um, if, we, if we breach that 1.5 degree Celsius figure above pre-industrial levels, uh, we are facing, you know, uh, increasing severity of things we're already observing at severe levels, that is droughts, floods, heat extremes, encroachments on animal habitats, which then contribute uh, to pandemics. Um, these will be more intense. And on top of that, we are hitting, we're coming up against uh, tipping points where, uh, for example, with the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet, uh, if, that start, if that melts, uh, globe, the oceans are gonna rise by five meters. Uh, that will wipe out you know, island communities, um, lowland places. Um, so these are the things that are the most pressing. So if you read like one of the lead authors of the IPCC, um, Pierre um, Humbert, Professor Pierre Humbert at Oxford, I mean, he himself, he's a you know, member of the IPCC, he's a distinguished climate scientist. And he basically says in this article he wrote in 2019, it's time to panic. We have to panic. That's how severe the climate crisis is. So, uh, and then I would just add, you know, just a couple of months ago, the General Secretary of the UN actually said, this year, 2021, is a critical year for moving us onto a climate stabilization path. We have to see uh, serious action in terms of dramatically reducing uh, CO2 emissions this year. Uh, and so I would say that's, that's where the world is. And on that, we have the issue, you'll see a lot, net zero greenhouse gas emissions, uh, 2050 as a target date, the Paris Agreement and decoupling. Can you just very briefly um, kind of define those things for us? So basically zero emissions, uh, refers to greenhouse gas emissions of which the most, the largest is carbon dioxide, but there's also methane and nitric oxide and a few other smaller ones. So, uh, you know, the, the IPCC says we have to be at zero by 2050. Now they say net zero, it's true. Uh, and there's ways to wiggle out when you say net zero because you say, well, we have, we will create, we have carbon sinks, for example, the Amazon, uh, oceans, which are being destroyed as carbon sinks, then other people will say, well, we have these technologies, carbon capture. Um, I don't buy those. We can go into that in a bit. But so, yeah, the, the goal is to be a, a zero emissions global society in 29 years. <laughs> um, now, what that'll entail first and foremost is absolutely stopping to use fossil fuels to burn fossil fuels for energy. That's the source of about 70% of all the emissions. Roughly the other 30% come from two sources uh, in the area of, of land use and agriculture. One is chopping down the rainforests, um, and the second is the use of industrial agriculture as opposed to organic agriculture. So to me, the critical project to get to zero emissions, obviously we have to stop using fossil fuels for energy and therefore we have to substitute clean energy, renewable energy. 
and, and second, we have to stop destroying our agricultural carbon sinks, meaning uh, rainforests and um, our agricultural lands. So that's basically the project. And before we um, turn to each of your solutions, um, maybe Jason, you wanna jump in on this. Can you explain some of the more mainstream solutions that, that we see here? I have in mind cap and trade, capture and sequestration, negative emissions technologies, carbon offsets, things like that. Yeah, sure. Um, first, I just want to add uh, one little piece to what uh, Bob has already said about the crisis um, in terms of sort of enhancing our analysis. And first of all, I just want to say an excellent rundown of the ecological crisis we face. Excellent. Um, but what I would add is simply to say that not all nations are equally, are equally responsible for this crisis. So, and we see this in two respects. First, when it comes to climate change, right? We know that the global north, like the rich nations of the global north, are responsible for 92% of excess emissions that are causing climate breakdown right now. Um, that's emissions in excess of their fair shares of the planetary boundary of 350 parts per million. The USA is single-handedly responsible for 40% of that, right? The global south, by contrast, the majority of global south countries are still within their fair shares of the planetary boundary, meaning they're not actively contributing to this crisis. Um, and yet they suffer 90% of the economic costs that are, that are being caused by climate breakdown and 98% of climate change related deaths, right? So the vast majority of the damage happens in the global South, even though it's being perpetrated primarily by the global North. So we have to be attentive to the colonial dimensions of this crisis. Rich countries are effectively colonizing atmospheric space, right? And this is true also when it comes to um, other dimensions of the ecological crisis. Uh, Bob mentioned several other planetary boundaries. Most of those are affected by excess resource use, okay? So uh, in the global economy. Right now, the global economy is using 100 billion tons, roughly, of materials per year, uh, which is more than double what industrial ecologists say is the safe, sustainable threshold. Um, and this is the main driver of biodiversity loss, okay? Now, now high-income nations are almost single-handedly responsible for this crisis, too. Um, uh, high-income nations consume, on average, about 28 tons of materials per person per year which is four times in excess of the sustainable boundary. Um, the USA is even much higher than that, one of the highest in the world. Um, and most of that excess resource use is net appropriated from the global South, right? There's a huge net flow of resources from South to North. I mean, think about the stuff that we consume in rich nations. Uh, just look at your clothes or your computer, et cetera. Uh, you know, those materials and the labor to put them together. Um, uh, are appropriated from the global south. So the impact of excess consumption in the north is offshored to the global south. And so here too, we see a clear colonial dimension to the ecological crisis. Uh, growth in the global north is sustained by this net flow of appropriation from the global south. So I would wanna make sure that's part of our analysis. Uh, in terms of your questions about um, carbon capture and storage, yeah, this is something that Bob uh, briefly mentioned. Um, you know, a lot of the ways that existing climate scenario, the, the main way that existing climate scenarios reconcile uh, perpetual growth with the Paris Climate Agreement goals um, is to uh, presuppose that sometime in the middle of the century, we're going to have a mass scaling of carbon capture and storage technology to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, so we can effectively overshoot our, our, our carbon budget now um, and then hope that technology saves us down the road. Now, crucially, scientists have been 
uh, calling foul on this assumption for quite a while. And now there's a very strong consensus against using this assumption um, in climate modeling scenarios to, to, the, to a great extent. Uh, and yet, as Bob pointed out, still packaged into the narrative around net zero, there's this assumption that maybe we can, we can squeak by with this, uh, you know, with this assumption. Now, I should point out that the, the key way that they suppose that CCS might work is by developing huge biofuel plantations up to three times the size of India, um, burning that biofuel for, for power and then capturing the carbon that gets emitted from the power stations and storing underground, right? Um, and it, it doesn't take long to realize that, you know, where is that biofuel going to come from? It's not going to come from England or from Finland. It's going to be, I mean, that land is going to be appropriated from the global south. And we're already seeing moves in that direction. And so, um, so here too, like, you know, this key green growth scenario assumption relies on uh, a vision that perpetuates colonial relations between, between North and South. And I think we have to watch out for that. And just real quick, um, there's, you know, cap and trade, um, carbon offsets, you know, what, what are, what are, what are those concepts? Are you asking me or? Either one. Yeah. Um, well, uh, cat, let's do the cap part before we do the trade part. Uh, the cap part means, uh, that you mandate that, entities such as utility companies can only burn uh, X amount of fossil fuels that are gonna generate emissions. So I like the, the idea of caps. Uh, in other words, if we say to utilities, um, starting today, you have to stop, uh, you have to reduce your uh, fossil fuel consumption by five, 7% per year, that's a law. If you violate the law, you go to jail. Uh, guess what? They'll stop burning fossil fuels and they'll figure out substitutes. So I like the cap part. I don't like the trade part. The trade part is the way that you wiggle out of it. The trade part says, well, if you don't, if you can't exactly meet the mandate, then maybe you can um, buy somebody else's right to burn uh, fossil fuels. And then we start out and we, uh, through this process, we are gonna create something like a financial market equivalent in trading carbon offsets, uh, in which case the whole thing becomes almost entirely unenforceable, uh, especially because of course you will then introduce the opportunity for all kinds of very smart lawyers and accountants to figure out ways through which entities can get around the cap. So cap, yes, trade, no. Uh, an alternative that uh, my friend here at UMass, Jim Boyce has developed and is now kind of caught on is what he calls cap and dividend, meaning that you have these carbon caps uh, and you have to pay uh, for the right to burn any fossil fuels uh, at, a, at a more severe cap every year. And then the money that comes out of paying for the cap uh, then gets distributed to people, for example, as Jason, Jason was talking about the unequal impacts of the climate crisis, you just distribute shares of that to everybody in the world. And that would be very uh, progressive in terms of distribution because low-income people, if you get equal shares, low-income people will come out with some significant benefit. 
Okay. Um, so do you want to, Bob, you know, take the lead and tell us, uh, you know, just in a, a few minutes, uh, your um, idea for a Green New Deal, then we'll have Jason go, and then we'll, we'll jump into a, a more free flow conversation. Sure. I mean, you know, the, the basically, if we're talking about the climate crisis uh, as the uh, central focus of of what the environmental problems we're addressing today. You know, the main answer is, is very straightforward. Uh, you just gotta stop burning fossil fuels to zero and we have to stop destroying rainforest and we have to uh, get rid of industrial corporate agriculture and substitute um, organic agriculture. That's the way through which we do it. Uh, that would restore carbon sinks uh, and it would get rid of the uh, increase in, uh, in greenhouse gas emissions coming primarily from burning fossil fuels. Now, when you say that, you know, it's actually easy to, to write it out on paper and all that. Um, it's also easy to come up with a solution within, uh, within, within a global, global economy. And that's kind of what I call the Green New Deal. I certainly didn't come up with the name. As far as I know, I think the name was actually first coined by Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, and he has a different conception and a lot of people have their own conceptions. But in my conception, so we stop burning fossil fuels and we uh, restore organic agriculture, we stop destroying the rainforest. Uh, what do we do then? Well, uh, you need to substitute alternative energy and the thing I've focused on is building up the um, high efficiency because um, according to the research literature, I think we can pretty easily run uh, the a global economy at roughly our scale, let's say half the level of energy consumption. That means we lower energy intensity by about half. Uh, and then secondly, uh, for the other half of the energy that we need, we build out uh, clean renewable energy, primarily solar and wind, but also geothermal, um, some small scale hydro, and then some low emissions uh, bioenergy for liquid fuels as needed. That's the solution. Now within that framework, uh, this is an investment project. So it is, uh, it, you know, I know Jason and, and I are gonna disagree, but uh, I think a lot of the disagreement is just about terminology. Uh, this is a, a massive growth project in terms of the clean energy investment. It is a massive degrowth project in terms of uh, shutting down the global fossil fuel industry and corporate agriculture. So uh, it is a growth project in that sense and the growth uh, will generate jobs. And I've, I've done a lot of work actually around the world trying to estimate the impact on job creation and what you see is that you get two to three times more jobs per a given amount of spending, uh, creating a clean energy system versus sustaining a fossil fuel system. So it's a source of job creation. Um, that it can be, it's not necessarily, but it can be egalitarian addressing the ways that uh, Jason has talked about our, our current system as being um, non-egalitarian because uh, the job creation will create opportunities for these to become good jobs through uh, union organizing, through labor laws, through forms of affirmative action. And then the other thing that we have to do that is central in my view of a Green New Deal 
is we do have to uh, focus on the transitional uh, costs to workers and communities that are dependent on the fossil fuel industry. And for that matter, dependent on the corporate <coughs> industrial agriculture. We have to create opportunities for them to transition into other things. It does not have to be the clean energy system. It can be uh, because that is gonna be growing so rapidly, but that has to be central. And, and if that part is not central, we will face, A, it's unjust. Uh, and secondly, we will face, continue to face massive resistance because people, and I, I hear it all the time because I'm doing work in different states and communities in the US. They say, well, yeah, you know, right now a uh, coal miner makes $100,000 a year with benefits. Uh, somebody working retrofitting buildings to, um, to uh, raise efficiency makes $35,000 a year and no benefits. So what do we do about that? Well, we have to address that and we have to make sure that the job creation and the job opportunities available outside of the fossil fuel industry are good. It's also the case that, look, coal mining didn't used to be a really good job. Uh, and it isn't in a lot of places. It got to be a good well-paying job at least because people organized for generations to make it such. And that's what we have to do as a central feature of the Green New Deal. Um, yeah, and uh, there's also the question of say the Middle East and some societies that are more dependent on oil as an export and, and things like that, of course. So it is, a, it is quite a thing, right, to create a just transition. Uh, it's feasible, right? But it's it's also from the way we act in the world to date, it's also, it's a hard thing to to accomplish, right, for activists. Sure, but it's, it's I think it's important to say it's not as massive or difficult as people, even from the standpoint of the owners of fossil fuel assets. So one of my PhD students right now is writing a dissertation on exactly the question. His name is Tyler Hansen. He's a great uh, researcher. So uh, Tyler and other people have done work on this too. So if we look at the private ownership of fossil fuel assets, it comes to about $3 trillion. If we add in all the public, now about 90% you know, of fossil fuel assets are publicly owned already, as you mentioned in the lease. Uh, so we're at about 13, 14, let's say $15 trillion, okay? Um, you know, the global financial market is almost $400 trillion. Uh, so this is a, not a, a large proportion. And if we're going to want, we're not going to shut it down tomorrow. Maybe we, we should. We're not going to. We're going to shut it down over, let's say, 20 years. And that gives plenty of time for anyone who owns any asset in the fossil fuel space to invest in something else including in the Middle East, including in Russia. Uh, it's an imperative that it gets done, but this is, you know, we're talking about an adjustment that's, you know, you know, one half of 1% of the global financial market. So it can be done. Jason, you had written quite a bit about questions of growth, also uh, solutions in the end of your book. Um, Bob also has a, a section on solutions in, in the end of of his book um, and in his work. Can you go through, Jason, your thoughts on a plan of action to handle this situation? Yeah, um, well, first of all, kind of try to give a framework, but uh, 
I'm gonna start by saying I'm absolutely in support of the Green New Deal. I think it's, um, I mean, I'm so glad this discourse is out there and I really appreciate the work that Bob has done in, uh, in kind of advancing these ideas. Um, but so my arguments, our arguments in ecological economics is, um, is simply to point out that to make this transition happen, specifically at the speed we need it to happen at, then rich nations like the US and the UK need to abandon growth as an, as an objective and shift to a post-growth economy that's focused on human well-being and ecological stability rather than on ever-increasing levels of commodity production and consumption, which is the present plan, right? Now, I say this for several empirical reasons. The first is that pursuing growth makes the task of rapid decarbonization much more difficult to achieve, right? And the reason is because more growth makes, uh, um, means uh, higher energy demands than would otherwise be the case in the economy. And higher energy demand makes it more difficult to cover that demand with renewable capacity in the short time we have left, right? Um, so, so growth uh, makes the transition more difficult. Second, the higher our energy demand is, again, relative to what it otherwise might be, the more material extraction we will need for the renewable transition. And we have to remember that things like solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, and so on, you know, that all of that infrastructure for renewable energy doesn't come out of thin air. It requires material extraction, and this extraction uh, comes overwhelmingly from the global south and is already causing ecological and social problems. Think of the Congo, uh, where our cobalt, our coltan comes from, and Bolivia, where a lot of the, the lithium comes from, and so on, right? Or it comes from vulnerable communities in the global north. Like just now, just, to, just today, the New York Times published a piece on indigenous communities in Nevada who are protesting a lithium mine that's being developed for US car batteries, right? So you can already see how the frontiers of resource extraction for the, for the transition are impacting on people, right? So, and of course we need this transition, but the more energy demand we have, uh, the, the more this is going to impact on extraction. Uh, finally, even if this energy question was not a problem, okay, let's imagine it away. Um, we, we know also that more growth means more resource use, which is what's driving, as I mentioned earlier, driving other forms of ecological impact. So we have to remember that, that while climate is imperative to confront, it's not the only crisis we face. And so we need a more ecologically coherent response. So to sum up, basically, yes, we need a Green New Deal urgently, but if we want our Green New Deal to be technologically feasible, socially just, and ecologically coherent, then it needs to be a Green New Deal uh, that is post-growth, right? Um, now, the key thing to remember here is that high-income nations like, say, the US and UK do not need more GDP growth in order to achieve strong social outcomes, right? So we tend to assume that growth is, a, is kind of a proxy for well-being, but beyond a certain point, the relationship between GDP and social indicators completely breaks down, right? So, the, so take the USA, for example. The USA has a GDP per capita of $65,000, making it one of the richest countries in the world. But Spain outperforms the US on social indicators, including a life expectancy that's five years longer with 55% less GDP per capita. And Spain is not an outlier. Uh, there's more than 40 countries that outperform the USA on social indicators with around 30 to 80% less GDP per capita, right? So this is quite extraordinary. So it's not clear to me that countries like the USA need more growth. The, the evidence actually suggests that when it comes to social progress, what matters is not an increase in aggregate commodity production and consumption, but a fairer distribution of existing income and access to universal public services, right? So this is how countries beat the USA is because they're not nearly as, as unequal and they have robust universal public services. These are basic demands for justice, right? 
So effectively what I'm saying is that we need a different kind of approach, right? So um, like the dominant assumption right now in economics is that every sector of the economy must grow all the time, regardless of whether or not we actually need it. And I think we think this is an irrational approach at the best of times, but particularly in an era of ecological breakdown. So instead, let's have a more rational conversation, right? Let's talk about what sectors of the economy we actually want to expand, things like renewable energy, like, like Bob is talking about, public transportation, healthcare, et cetera. And then what sectors are clearly too big and should be actively scaled down? So fossil fuels, yes, degrowth fossil fuels, but also SUVs, private jets, fast fashion, industrial beef, advertising, you know, the practice of planned obsolescence, the military industrial complex. I mean, these sectors of the economy are extremely ecologically destructive and socially less necessary. And so we can scale them down. Um, and in so doing, our economy actually requires less labor and we can redirect labor into, as Bob pointed out, the excellent jobs that are going to be created for the rene renewable transition and ecological regeneration. We can shorten the working week introduce a public job guarantee, maintain full employment during this entire transition to ensure that it is just with living wages. Um, and what's amazing about this approach is it, will, it would allow us to actively reduce resource use and energy use, bringing our economy back into balance with the living world, reversing biodiversity loss and enabling a much faster transition to renewables, okay? One that's consistent with 1.5 degrees. Um, at the same time, because we're reducing energy use, we're also, um, we're, we're also reducing our pressure on the global south, right? And, and so this approach is consistent with demands from the global south for rich nations to scale down energy and resource use to, to effectively decolonize the atmosphere and decolonize southern ecosystems. And this is embedded you know, in uh, landmark statements like the Cochabamba Statement, signed by thousands of um, social movements from across the global south. Uh, so, and you know, these principles are widely supported by the scholarship in ecological economics and are embedded in, for example, the Green New Deal for Europe uh, platform, which to me is the most progressive version of the Green New Deal out there. Um, and I should note, it's different from the European Green Deal. <laughs> um, uh, and I think, I think better, but anyways, so just to give you an idea for how these ideas have been taken up already in, uh, you know, by some social movements and policymakers. Okay, now, um, Bob, you wrote an article at New Left Review in, in 2018, and uh, you, you had a, a number of points in, points in there about the degrowth position and um, slogans, arithmetic, job losses, economy, things like that. Do you want to give your take there and, and a kind of response to uh, some of what you've taken to be the case for degrowth? Sure. Um, first of all, you know, what Jason just said, I agree with 92% of it. So I think maybe two, and, and by the way, I said that in the New Left Review article. I, people seem to neglect that, but uh, it's right there, like paragraph three. Um, and in the book with Noam Chomsky, I say it again. Uh, so I think, you know, kind of the, the idea that, um, what I'm calling a Green New Deal is somehow opposed to, antithetical to the kinds of things Jason is talking about is simply uh, wrong. Um, uh, there are differences, of course, and there are differences. I have differences with almost everybody, including my wife, you know, my kids, my grandkids, uh, my colleagues. So this is uh, something that, you know, we can advance by having 
uh, constructive debates. The, you know, for as a small example, there's a 19, 2019 article in Science by Tim Jackson and Peter Victor um, called Unraveling the Claims for, for and Against uh, Green Growth. I agreed with almost everything in it other than rhetoric. So I think, you know, we should be really focused on what uh, is the substance at stake and, and less focused on uh, differences in terms of terminology. So um, one difference I would say uh, in relative to what Jason said, and he and I had an email exchange about this, I don't know, a year ago. Um, he doesn't really put a lot of emphasis um, on the prospects for raising energy efficiency standards. And uh, that's really critical. Uh, a, it's, it's the cheapest way to reduce emissions is to raise energy efficiency. Jason did refer to public transportation. Um, and to the extent we rely on private transportation, high efficiency vehicles, um, high efficiency in buildings. Uh, we built at my own university, my, my department built a zero emissions building in, in cold, uh, cloudy Amherst, Massachusetts. It can be done every single place in, on planet Earth. Um, do we want to call that degrowth? I, you know, I don't know. I don't. I, I actually call it, you know, major growth of new building stock, renovating buildings, um, innovation in, in the, the way we insulate, in, a, in the way we heat and light and cool buildings. I, I don't call it degrowth. I don't think it's particularly helpful, but other people do. Um, in terms of the, you know, the basic issues of getting emissions down, um, and I'm not a proponent of GDP as some, a perfect measure of social well-being by any means, um, but if we want to think about economic activity, whether we use the term GDP or not, if we reduce overall economic activity by 10%, say, and we don't change, uh, oh, totally overturn the energy system, we will reduce emissions by 10%. That's fourth grade mathematics. Uh, so uh, it follows that yes, whether we uh, reduce economic activity by 10% or not, it gets us nowhere, effectively nowhere, uh, until we transform the entire global energy system entailing growth of clean systems, elimination, degrowth of dirty systems, and we transform the, our land use and agricultural system. And by the way, transforming to organic agriculture does have problems. Um, it does not produce as much food. Uh, we need to recognize that. So we need to do that more efficiently. Um, it needs to be done. Uh, we do need to uh, reduce the uh, extent to which we rely on uh, animals uh, uh, because especially uh, raising cattle consume so much land. Uh, so whether everyone not becomes a vegetarian or vegan uh, or whether we have these so-called animal substitute uh, forms of protein, uh, we, we do, it does have to get done, but it entails uh, investment, transition. And in terms of the use of materials um, for uh, building up the renewable energy system, uh, we have to, we can think about opportunities for recycling, which uh, right now 
the global recycling industry of the relevant minerals is less than 1%. Uh, if you go from 1% recycling to 5% recycling only, that's a five-fold increase in your available resources for building up the renewable energy system. And if we can get to 5%, why can't we get to 30% or 40%? So these are things that I think are things on which we need to focus. The last thing I would say is, if we are really thinking about um, contracting economic activity, whether we call it uh, degrowth or not, I don't think, you know, uh, Jason referred to full employment. I don't think there's a credible story there as to how we protect jobs in, in the real world today. I understand it in an ideal sense, but in a real world, I don't see it as happening. And uh, I, can I can tell you about the kind of work I do in different states and different countries. Uh, there, there isn't a credible way to tell that story. And so, yes, uh, there's a lot of waste in uh, production in, in rich countries, uh, but not everybody is wasting. Uh, high income people are wasting, but I think we have to be really cognizant of, you know, if we're gonna contract activity, it's yes, it's it's nice to say people can have higher wages and more free time. I don't know that that's going to happen and that therefore we have to think about something that is viable within our current uh, economic system. Uh, Jason, uh, your, your response? Yeah, let me jump in. Um, first of all, I do think that that Bob and I agree on on much more than we disagree about. So let's let's make sure that it's all, it's clear to everyone that we're on the same side here. But um, let me just address this claim that Bob has, uh, has made here and also which he has repeated elsewhere. Um, his claim that degrowth is not going to work because if you uh, contract the economy by 10%, then you win only 10% reduction in emissions and that's obviously not enough, right? So, but this is not in fact what degrowth argues, right? So um, obviously the way to reduce emissions is with renewable energy transition. <laughs> Uh, and what Degro simply points out is that by not growing the economy or by, by scaling down excess commodity production, then you reduce energy use and therefore make it easier to transition to renewables in a shorter period of time, right? So that, that, this is the key argument here. So nobody's arguing that we have to degrow the economy to zero. That would be clearly absurd. <laughs> Um, so we need, to, we need to take the argument at its, uh, um, you know, in terms of its actual value. Now, on the question of uh, efficiency, yeah, I mean, I am, I'm super pro-efficiency. I'm, uh, I'm a tech optimist when it comes to the importance of efficiency improvements. Uh, I'm all about passive houses, et cetera. So we're on the same page there. Um, but on top of that, we also argue for a sufficiency-oriented approach to the economy, right? So efficiency, yes, but also, but also sufficiency. So, and this is where things like public transportation come in. Like we could have a, a lot fewer cars on the road by switching to public transportation. That is, an, that, that's actually a sufficiency oriented approach. Like how many cars do we really need per capita to live good lives, right? We can scale down the car fleet to a level that's sufficient for our needs while still living flourishing lives. And that's true also of things like obviously, um, you know, beef, et cetera, industrially produced beef, et cetera. But let's think about the big one here, planned obsolescence, okay? you know, products that are designed to break down after a short period of time. Uh, let's imagine that we 
triple their lifespans, which we know is technologically feasible in most cases. Let's, we triple the lifespans of our mobile phones and our washing machines, et cetera. That means that we consume one third as many. So there is a literal contraction in the industry that produces smartphones and washing machines, right? That, that's degrowth towards a sufficiency-oriented approach. This is not about poverty. Like we still have access to the goods that we need. We're just not throwing our phones away every two years, right? Um, so that's what we mean by scaling down excess commodity production. This is not about an, uh, you know, scaling down every industry. It's simply industries that we just really don't need. Like, and the jobs that are in those industries, if we have industries that are producing goods that are designed to break down, the jobs in those industries are a waste of human lives, right? Um, if we could scale those industries down and still have the goods that we need from them, and that requires less employment, we should celebrate that because those are now lives that are not being wasted in unnecessary production. And instead, people can get jobs doing things that are actually socially useful in non-alienated, ecologically regenerative work, right? This is the kind of future we should pursue. Um, so that's the way that I would phrase it. Um, in terms of the question of, uh, of, of jobs, uh, right? Let's, let's imagine there is a small contraction in excess production in the USA. What's that going to do to jobs? It's going to increase uh, unemployment a little bit, but um, but this, this can be, I mean, the, the literature and, and, you know, uh, on the job guarantee is quite clear that this can be absorbed uh, by shortening the working week and introducing a public job guarantee scheme. I mean, I, I don't see any holes in that argument, actually. It's simply a reallocation of labor time and a, a more even distribution of it. Um, so that's crucial. Now, in terms of the income question, which Bob also raised, yeah, in countries like the USA, there's a huge room for income redistribution. Enormous. <laughs> I mean, CEO salaries uh, as a ratio of worker salaries have exploded over the past couple of decades. And we can reverse all of that, um, you know, with feasible policy on living wages, wealth taxes, you know, maximum income ratios, et cetera, et cetera. This is not actually rocket science. We did this, you know, during the middle of the 20th century. Um, and there's no reason we can't do it again, especially given the emergency we face. And so I, I do think that, in fact, I don't think, I'm 100% confident that livelihoods could be preserved and even enhanced in a post-growth scenario like this, um, especially once you recognize the crucial facts that ecological economists point to, which is that it's not income itself that matters. It is the welfare purchasing power of income. And this is fungible. This can be improved significantly. So if I'm on a salary of $30,000 in the USA, I will be dirt poor. I will not be able to send my kids to university and I will probably go into debt if I have a health problem. If I'm on the same salary in Finland where I can send my kids to the best universities in the world for free and, uh, and have free healthcare and rent controls and access to public saunas, I'm living a good life, right? So, so this is why we call for the expansion of universal basic services and decommodification of key goods to ensure that everyone has access to the resources they need to live flourishing lives, um, even as you know, unnecessary commodity production shrinks. So should the McMansion production sector shrink? Yes, uh, right? <laughs> Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't need to translate into uh, into disaster for people's livelihoods. In fact, we can do the opposite. So that's that's our key argument. So to me, there's there's something there's something actually substantive here in terms of how wide a gap there is between these two perspectives, because uh, because what Jason, what you're saying is um, and, and what others are saying, 
is that there is an extraction and a a use of 100 billion tons aggregately by the human species per year, and that the sustainable limit is probably somewhere around 50 billion tons. And the global economy is built around growth. That's what we have. So if we're going at something like 2.8% aggregate growth rate, within 25 years, we're doubling that. So now we're at 200 billion tons. But we know that this compounds, right? So in another 25 years, you're up to 400, right? And it just keeps going. So it seems to me that, first of all, everybody actually supports degrowth at a certain point in time. The question is just when, because it's impossible, literally impossible because of the nature of exponential growth for the species to just keep growing our economy. That's one. Two, the question of growth as a topic, and I do want to get both of your takes on this, as a political, you know, strategic term, it seems to me that there's one case to be made that it's basically a synonym for progress, for life getting better. So what do you mean? You don't want to grow? If I'm living in poverty, what does that mean for me? Or if I'm middle class, I, I still want to have my life a little bit better. So are you meaning that I'm going to have less stuff? Um, so the, but on the other hand, if you were an alien species looking down at earth, you would notice within the last 200 plus years, an enormous expansion of the number of human beings and the amount of stuff that they're using and the changing of the environment in a way that we know is destructive. So it seems to me that growth is like, why would you at a certain point in time be opposed to just saying, look, growth is an issue. And then on top of all that, we have the distribution issue. If what the degrowth camp is saying is, look, we have um, something like 25 plus uh, metric tons per person per year of consumption, super poor people are like two tons and uh, four, you know, 4 billion people are living on, on a meager, under the meager poverty line of $7.40 a day. If there is a limit to aggregate growth, which has been the model for improvement to life, uh, and is still in the minds of most people, the model for how we can be just, that we can, as long as everybody gets a little more at the end of the day under a growth model, um, it's okay, right? Um, if we have to actually cap the amount of consumption use, then that means there's billions of people who need more. And it means that that we need a massive wealth and income redistribution. Um, So on those points of the politics of the term, but also the inevitability of the growth not being something that's sustainable, um, and then the distribution issue. Bob, you know, kind of what do you say to those kind of core arguments there? Well, I think actually you put things very well. Obviously, at a certain point, um, we can't keep consuming the things that we're consuming at the level we're consuming. That's absolutely true. Uh, And then secondly, you raised the critical point of distribution of resources. And obviously, within the world economy, within the US economy, uh, we have, you know, obscene levels of inequality in terms of the distribution of goods and services. So um, yeah, uh, those are all uh, straightforward points and I agree with what you just said. But as you also said, um, you know, there, 
there's the issues that would seem critical for debates now in terms of getting from here to there are uh, defining these considerations uh, with somewhat more precision. Um, so let me just give a couple of examples. I already gave one uh, with respect to recycling of the materials that are available for building out the renewable energy sector. Yes, at a certain point, you know, we're gonna we're gonna really face severe constraints. But if we're only recycling less than one percent of the available resources, um, well, for, there, there's probably a reason because it's cheaper right now to to dig them up than to recycle. But if we build out the recycling sector, um, we can, as I said, even move, moving from one percent to five percent increases the available resources fivefold. Now that's a really important consideration. Uh, Jason mentioned public transportation, and I again I totally agree with that. In the U.S., we have a really serious problem, and I'm a big advocate of public transportation. But the serious problem is this: something like 95% of all passenger miles uh, right now are through private transportation. So let's say we double public transportation we're still gonna have 90% running on private transportation. Let's say we triple it, you know, we're still gonna be at 80, 85%. So for the next, you know, if we're gonna hit anything close to the emission reduction target, uh, you know, IPCC, we have to deal with the private transportation. So we can't just say that public transportation is great, which it is, but we have to uh, invest in uh, clean forms of private transportation. That's that's just the reality. We, you know, if we don't do that, we will absolutely never come close to hitting the emission reduction target. Um, in terms of the, I, Jason mentioned the idea of job guarantees. Uh, yeah, again, it's it's a it's a, uh, a good principle. I've written a book on full employment. I wrote a book on uh, you know full employment in South Africa in Kenya even. Uh, so it's not that I'm against it, uh, but when we talk about it and some of the ways it's been crafted here in the US, it is not, in my view, careful enough in, ter in terms of talking about what full employment doing what and at what uh, job, job level, what standard of living. Uh, if, if a nurse gets laid off, is the nurse supposed to you know, go work in the clean energy or are we supposed to guarantee them a job in where their skills are in nursing. So uh, those are issues that need to be more, more fully explored. Uh, in terms of, you know, stuff, uh, uh, you know, there are other areas that can be developed. For example, renewable bioplastics is a, is a possibility in terms of expanding availability of things that people need. I mean, of course, I'm not going to argue on behalf of more McMansions or more SUVs, uh, but if we look at the global population, 90, 95% of the people I don't think do have more than what they need. Uh, if we look at you know rural areas in Sub-Saharan Africa or India or most develop, uh, developing countries, I mean, roughly 50% of the people have no access to electricity. So we're gonna massively expand the uh, electricity available to them through uh, renewable energy. And when we do that, that will be transformative to their lives. They won't have to spend hours every day gathering wood 
and so forth. So I, I think dealing in terms of these more specific issues um, to me is uh, helpful, is more helpful. But generally speaking, you know, I, I don't have fundamental disagreements. And before we, um, before I bring Jason back in, I just want to ask, Bob, just substantively, do you agree or disagree with the notion of capping aggregate resource use to, uh, and also reducing it down? And at that point, um, what do you say about distribution? Because it's one thing to not build more McMansions. It's another thing that there are people who have them right now and maybe shouldn't. And not only that, but um, the question of people want to know concretely, well, what does this mean for me? If I'm sitting and living, living, say, in the United States or Europe right now, or even in South Africa and I'm in the suburbs, what do I consume and how much less am I going to have so that others can have more in the, in the scenario of um, putting a cap and, and reducing down resource use? So where do you sit on that 100 billion versus 50 billion question, and then what does it mean for redistribution and the need for that? Well, I, I mean, in terms of redistribution, uh, I obviously am a strong proponent. Jason referred to the ratio of corporate CEO pay to average worker pay in the US. Yeah, in 1970, it was about 30 to one. The average CEO made 30 times more, which itself is unfair. They made about $1.5 million. Average worker made $50,000. Right now, the, the ratio is over 300 to one. The average worker makes still makes 50,000. The average CEO makes uh, 15 million. So yeah, th this, this is due to you know, neoliberalism, which has been predominant, which has been hegemonic in the world basically since around 1980. So yeah, uh, now uh, I think that's obscene. It should change. Uh, we need to mobilize people around that. How we do that effectively, I think, is an open question. Um, in terms of who has McMansions or not right now, uh, of course, there's, I mean, I'm sitting in my own house, which happens to be a very nice house. And it's much better than, let's say, the average house for everyone in the world. So uh, that's, a, uh, that's a reality. Um, should, should uh, it be the priority right now to get people into smaller living quarters? Um, I wouldn't argue for that, maybe for personal reasons, uh, but I would say that um, the most critical things right now are the things I, I talked about, is transforming the energy system, transforming the agricultural system. So massive growth of clean energy, massive growth of organic agriculture, and degrowth of uh, deforestation, degrowth of fossil fuels. And, you know, the other things are important. Uh, I, didn't, I don't think they're at the level of urgency. And then how exactly we debate around these things, I think requires more detailed understanding. For example, the market for recycling, um, before we uh, get on to other things and make sweeping generalizations. And just real quick, um, do you have a position on the capping resource use 100 billion, 50 billion, where we should be at? I don't, no. Okay. Um, Jason, um, how do you respond to this? I want you to um, bring in also in your response at some point, the question of absolute decoupling 
and the time scale. I mean, we might say that the position of degrowth is, um, you know, a, a much steeper hill to climb than investing two to three percent of GDP in alternative, sustainable, and clean energy sources, and um, you know, some changes to agriculture and things like that. Yeah. Okay. There's there's um there's lots to discuss here. Uh, first of all, on the question of caps. So Bob has already uh, demonstrated his interests and support for a, a cap on fossil fuels. And I think that's absolutely essential. And this is really, I have to say, missing from the public discourse. I mean, even looking at Biden's recent statements on the White House webpage with his new commitments, you know, this, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't mention fossil fuels once, right? Think about that. Like, you know, we have a whole conversation about emissions, but we're not talking about fossil fuels. This is crazy. So we have to have a cap on fossil fuels and scale that down, you know, uh, annually. But the same is true also of resource use. And maybe that can be a slightly longer trajectory, but we know this is, uh, you know, resource use driving biodiversity collapse is an equally serious uh, dimension of the ecological crisis uh, to climate change. And so, yes, we have to have a conversation about resource capping and scaling that down. And we need to be, we need to be thinking about convergence models here, right? Um, in terms of both energy and resource use. Our existing scenarios presuppose that high income nations, you know, in the global North, uh, sustain high levels of resource and energy use for the rest of the century, um, uh, much higher than in the global South. This is an unjust proposition and is morally and politically untenable. If I'm, an, if I'm a negotiator from the global South, why should I accept such a future? Why should I get on board with any of your plans if, uh, if you're going to bake inequality into them, right? And so what we propose in uh, ecological economics is a convergence such that we have resource and energy use uh, declining in the, in the global north to get back within sustainable levels and increasing in the global south to meet human needs, uh, converging at a level that's consistent with universal human welfare and ecological, uh, ecological stability and rapid decarbonization. That should be the vision that we are promoting. And anything other than that, to me, is, you know, uh, has problematic residues of colonial thinking, <laughs> right? We, we have to get beyond that, I think. So, um, so there's that. Uh, now, I want to emphasize here that, that the problem is not individual consumption. And I think this gets, gets lost too often. Um, the problem is our production system, which is organized around the necessity for constant expansion. Okay, so, uh, and this is baked into capitalism, like our system is only stable if it is expanding. And that's the problem we want to address. We need to organize the economy such that we can deliver strong social outcomes uh, even in the absence of growth, of, of growth, of commodity production growth. So, um, and when I say it's the production system that's the problem, not consumption, is that uh, as, as consumers, as individuals, I hate the word consumers, as individuals uh, in a system that's organized around perpetual expansion, we have to mop it up through consumption. Otherwise, there's overaccumulation, overproduction, and collapse. Uh, some kind of crisis emerges, right? So, so we're pressured into, into mopping it up mopping it up with aggressive advertising schemes and you know, planned obsolescence, et cetera. So we are not primarily the ones responsible for this problem. It's a systemic problem. And so talking about like who needs to reduce their consumption to me is the wrong approach. The question should be, how do we change the structure of the economy such that it doesn't require perpetual expansion? Um, so again, planned obsolescence, that's a production problem, not a consumption problem. Um, Sure, private jets, that's a consumption problem. <laughs> a lot of elite consumption is wasteful, but 
uh, a lot of non-elite consumption is wasteful at the production side. Uh, that's what I want to emphasize here. Um, so that's what we have to be talking about. On the question of recycling, I'm a huge proponent of recycling, circular principles, I back them, et cetera. But we have to recognize that only a small fraction of our total material use is recyclable in the first place. Um, the majority of it is either permanently degraded in the process of use, in the, in the case of biomass primarily, um, like for food and so on, uh, and fuel, uh, or is net addition to infrastructural stocks, okay, net addition. And so even if we were to recycle all of the recyclable materials, then in a growth-oriented economy, we still have an aggregate increase in total material use. And so recycling helps a lot and we must pursue it, but, uh, but it has to be linked to post-growth economic principles in order for it to lead to a decline in absolute material use. And I think that's important to point out. Um, so on the question of absolute decoupling, uh, we have to, which is what you asked, Michael. We have to distinguish a few things here. Absolute decoupling of GDP from emissions, totally possible, okay? We can have, you know, we can, we can reduce emissions to zero uh, without, um, without worrying about absolute decoupling. It, this is already happening in high-income nations. There's absolute decoupling. Absolute decoupling of GDP from resource use and energy use, uh, there's no evidence of this at a regional or global scale. And all existing models that we have um, indicate that it is not feasible to achieve, uh, certainly at the rates that are necessary. Um, and so there's a strong consensus in the empirical literature that it's, it's, it's not reasonable to plan economic policy on the basis that absolute decoupling will be achieved. And this is why there's an empirical argument for a, for a post-growth economy. Uh, and so I think we have to take that seriously. Um, Look, I mean, this discipline is exciting precisely because it has to be so rigorously grounded in evidence in order to run up against what are dominant assumptions in orthodox economics. And they've done so quite successfully. Um, in the past year alone, there have been a series of major review papers published on the question of decoupling, and they all come to the same conclusions. And so I think that we have to start taking those conclusions seriously if we're going to be scientific about this question at all. Yeah. and and. I want to um, ask you about timescale here and debt. So you're saying it's not a, a personal consumption thing, and I'm taking that to be a, a like it's not a consumer choice thing. But we still, of course, know that the rich people in the world, the richer countries, and even the rich within the South are consuming more than their fair share of resources if there are the kinds of limits in place that um, mm -hmm. you know, we're saying. So the question becomes, uh, because you, you had just said that perhaps a longer timescale for resource capping, but my understanding is, is that uh, if we're gonna continue along the march of, uh, resource, of, of increasing resource consumption before that 2050 deadline for the 1.5 degrees Celsius above mm. pre-industrial levels, then we have a problem here. And so, one question I want to ask you um, then is if you're looking at when we're, we see a lot of talk about, you know, emissions debt and um, the rich over polluting and, and consuming their fair share of carbon historically, that the global South has a right to emit more vis-a-vis -vis them, at, you know, as we're winding down, is there a material resource debt that we should be talking about, which would essentially be reparations? How do we work this out? 
because those in the North simply have more. Does what you're saying require a reparation scenario, a redistribution North to South? And if so, what's your timescale here in terms of, of need? Not what we would like to do, but what we need to do in the time that we have. Yeah, no, you make a good point, Michael, about some, about, yeah, I mean, look, there's a, a link between resource use and energy use. Like our, our material economy requires lots of energy, right? So when it comes to the climate question, yes, the reduction in resource use is actually pretty important. In fact, in fact, the IPCC is clear that, um, that a reduction of resource use is best, sorry, a reduction of energy use is best achieved by a reduction in the material economy in high income nations. So yes, you're right about that. Um, in terms of reparations, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that the, the reparations have to be paid at minimum in the sense of uh, the cost of damages that the South suffers due to climate breakdown um, needs to be compensated by, the, by those who have caused climate breakdown, right? So there, there, there do need to be strong transfers here. And that's in addition to transfers required to, um, to uh, you know, for in terms of technology to ensure a rapid transition to renewables in the global south. I do think reparations has to be part of the discussion. It was part of, it was part of Bernie Sanders' GND platform and it's fallen out of the US public debate. And I think that we need to bring that back in for sure. Okay, so let's kind of move towards a close here. Um, I'm gonna throw three questions out and then you know budget your time here um, as, as you see, but strategic approaches. So one of the things in, in here, if we're being honest about this conversation is that the United States has 4% of the world's population. It's dominant in the global economy. Its corporations are, its consumption, its pollution. And while it's not the only problem, it's uh, a major one. And then we have the issue of, uh, so we have Chomsky saying in, in, in Bob's book that you have the Republicans and, and you know we're going to have to get them on board so that they're not seeing uh, the environmental uh, changes that we need to be such a threat that they have to agree. Um, but at the same time, you have people on the left who are calling them fascists, who are calling them racists. So from a strategic standpoint, that's probably not going to win them over. But then you kind of look at it and you say, well, but if the United States can't get it together, because even the liberals and the Democrats and some of the progressives are not really on board for acknowledging the severity of the persistence of, of American empire, should potentially the rest of the world be pursuing a strategy which starts targeting the U.S. and saying, look, you're going to sink us all. So I want to ask you um, real quick about that. And then just to wrap up, um, what are your views on um, the Biden, you know, what's your report card? How is the Biden administration doing so far? How is the European um, community doing in uh, and, and China? Um, where, we, where do we sit today? So Bob, I know you have to run. So let, let me put this to you first. Okay, so um, in terms of the, you know, the dominance of the US and the impact of the US on the global economy, I think you know, the, the simplest way to address it and we can use the term reparations or we can use some other term, is that the US, and I guess the EU as well, but the US simply has to finance the global transition. And it can be done quite easily uh, for the US to, you know, in my own model, which by the way, is almost entirely consistent with the recent model that the um, ARENA, International Renewable Energy Agency put out in terms of 
the cost of it, of the investment costs of getting to zero emissions by 2050, which is about 4.5 trillion dollars per year. Um, we, you know, the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve um, just dropped uh, four trillion dollars into Wall Street within the last 12 months. Um, so for the U.S. combined with the uh, uh, European Central Bank to finance a, whatever we want to call it, a green bond program for the globe, it's really not a problem. It can be done. On top of that, and Jason mentioned this earlier, we uh, reduce uh, military spending globally, but most of that comes from the US. So we cut back military spending. We can make the argument, well, if you're really interested in, in human security and well-being, well, then we have to address the climate crisis and spend less on the military. Um, so these things, again, on paper are easily handled. And I think that it is something that you know, we need to push on in terms of the politics, which brings up uh, Biden and so forth. Uh, Biden was certainly not my first candidate for US president. In fact, he was probably my last other than the Republican, but let's look at where he's gone. Now it's nowhere near adequate and I'll get to that in a second, but uh, he has certainly pushed far beyond uh, what anyone, uh, reasonably could have expected with respect to him as a mainstream corporate Democrat. He's pushed far beyond where Obama was on uh, climate issues. He was vice president. I mean, I myself was a consultant to the energy department in the first couple of years of the Obama administration. Uh, the Biden program is way more ambitious. Now, why? Well, because people organize, the left organize, okay? It's sure, it's Bernie Sanders, it's AOC. But it's not just the big names. It's a lot of people you never heard of uh, who are really out there organizing. My own work over the past year has been focused around working with those groups. And I'll give you one example. I did a study for West Virginia, the state of West Virginia, the most coal dependent state in the country, the poorest state in the country. And so I wrote out a Green New Deal for, for West Virginia. And lo and behold, you know, the union uh, movement has gotten behind a version of it. Um, even the senator, right-wing Democratic Senator Manchin, has not opposed it. We thought he would, but he hasn't. So um, I think there is opportunity here in um, in recognizing uh, the, the severity of the crisis, but explaining it in a way that shows the opportunities for well-being and transition. Um, the uh, European Green Deal, uh, and Jason mentioned it, is also, it sounds great on paper. I've read it over carefully. It is nowhere close to adequate in terms of the financing they're proposing. They're proposing something like 100 billion euros a year, uh, including everything, public and private spending. Uh, by my calculations, that's about 0.6% of European GDP, if we make some reasonable assumptions on growth, um, whether we like the growth or not. Um, so it, that, they need to ramp up, you know, three, fourfold. Uh, the Biden proposal is better in terms of the amount of money. Uh, it's still not adequate, but the most critical problem I have with the Biden proposal is what uh, Jason mentioned. Um, it talks about reducing emissions, but it doesn't talk about how you get there. And the, the thing that's uh, lurking underneath that is that 
a very strong commitment to maintaining the fossil fuel industry with carbon capture technology and nuclear power, as opposed to renewables and efficiency. Oh, one, you asked about the Republicans. So the, yeah, the example about West Virginia, I think, conveys what is possible. If we think, you know, in 2008, the presidential candidate of the Republicans, McCain, had a climate stabilization program as part of the platform. It wasn't good, but he had it. He wasn't a denier. In 2007, uh, George W. Bush, uh, imperialist, uh, though he is, he had a program, energy security uh, and something uh, that passed and it called for, you know, retrofitting all the public buildings in the United States. And I just wrote a memo yesterday to the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus saying, let's revive exactly what Bush put in, in place, put some money behind it. So, you know, we dealing with the world where it is today, I think those we see possibilities. It's obviously it's a steep climb, uh, but you know I think if we present something that looks like a reasonable program that can address issues with respect to jobs, communities, um, we can make headway. And Jason. Yeah, I mean I don't have much to add to that. I, I mean I 100% agree with Bob's uh, critique of the Biden plan. I 100% agree with his point about finance. Finance is really not uh, a problem when it comes to, to this transition we're talking about. Um, I mean, the very fact that, uh, you know, the governments around the world are right now printing extraordinary amounts of money. Um, and like Bob pointed out, just dropping them on Wall Street, for example, you know, I mean, we can do something different with that, with that, with that money and with that, uh, with that power. I also 100% agree with the idea that we need to be getting unions on board with, uh, with a just transition framework. And I think that the environmentalist movement has really done a poor job on this so far. Um, you know, uh, I mean, groups like Extinction Rebellion have done a lot, you know, Fridays for Future, et cetera, et cetera. They can close down streets in central London and change the public discourse. But uh, a united working class movements can close down the economy with a general strike and that is much more persuasive to people in power, right? And so getting unions on board, getting working class formations on board um, and other kinds of alliances is really essential to the political power that we need um, to move this forward. And, this, and, and to do that, you have to, you have to emphasize the just dimensions of this. This is, uh, this is about good jobs. This is about you know, taking the question of livelihoods off the table. We want to build a society where everybody has access to good livelihoods and universal public services and so that is no longer a question. And then we can have a conversation about what sectors of the economy are, are destructive and need to be scaled down without worrying about the impact on employment and so on. Okay, so that has to be a, a core first principle. Now, in terms of Republicans, uh, I wanna say this. <laughs> um, in response to Chomsky's argument, like I know that Chomsky is actually on board with key degrowth principles. He's afraid, however, of the political question here. How can, you, how can you get uh, political consensus around a transition that involves a word like degrowth? Now, here's my response to that, is that degrowth is an analytical term. It's an analytical term that has a precise meaning in the literature and ecological economics, and we need it for that purpose. Uh, um, and so it's useful for our academic debates, useful for, um, for the left, and is increasingly useful in social movements as an analytical frame. But I'm not saying that, that politicians need to be fronting at the podium with that word. Uh, we don't need the word. 
um, when it comes to public facing uh, policymakers, but we do need the policies that are behind them. And those are straightforward. Uh, abandon GDP growth as a core objective, which is something that you know, New Zealand has already done um, to enormous excitements uh, from social movements around the world. Uh, Scotland, Iceland are talking about similar things. That's not a difficult thing. There's a, lot, there's a big consensus actually uh, among many even Nobel, you know, uh, Nobel laureates in economics um, around this idea. Uh, and then you know, also scale down socially less necessary and ecologically destructive industries while ensuring you decommodify key social goods um, and take the question of livelihoods off the table. These are the principles that we need and, uh, and everyone can get on board with this um, except for like the people that are gonna be difficult to persuade are powerful class factions. And that's where the challenge lies. This is not about getting everyday people on board. This is about powerful class factions that benefit prodigiously from the existing arrangements of the, of the global economy. Um, and that's what we have to be able to confront, which can only be done, as Bob uh, pointed out, with, uh, with social movements. That's how you create this kind of change. So that's where we're headed in the next 10 years. And it will be quite a ride, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, I think that we still have you know, big questions to ask about that timescale question and about the kinds of redistributive programs that seem to be necessary but we're gonna to have to work that out over time for sure. So I wanna thank the both of you for coming on today. This has been great. Thanks very much. It's been really interesting and I learned a lot. Thanks very much, Michael. And Bob, really good to see you and thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank you for your work. All right, cheers everyone. Bye. All right, take care, Michael. Bye-bye. <laughs>